0: The Guardian.
1: Hello and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, the full extent of bullying and sexual harassment is revealed at the BBC. Plus, how the debate about the future of press regulation has become a right royal charter for confusion. And why John Whittingdale thinks ITV should be let off the public service hook. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. And I'm joined this week by Stig Abel, the former director of the Press Complaints Commission and now a partner at the communications agency Pagefield and media consultant and many things beside, Paul Robinson. Welcome uh, both. Hello. So I've spent the morning learning about TweetDeck and how you can use it to sort of uh, zone in on a, a particular part of the world within a one kilometre radius. Were you guys big on Twitter? Are you aware of this?
2: I've just, I have just started on Twitter yesterday.
1: Oh, I saw you yeah. followed me and I responded yeah, you, in you kind. Did.
2: Yeah, uh, I'm slightly surprised by it all.
1: You're a bit, of a bit of a late adopter um, right, with the due respect stick.
2: Yeah, far too late. But cool. I have tweet date, but I've never used it to zone in on anything.
1: Well, apparently, if you, you know, look up on Google, there's sort of something to do with uh, geo and uh, another word I can't remember. And uh, you can you get into a very tight radius. So I'm going to to try and go in on my next-door neighbour. I don't know if you can get that specific, Paul.
3: I'm a bit worried about you going in on your neighbour, but uh, I do tweet quite a lot, yes, and I find it very useful. I mean, I I find I use it as a source of news. I often go to the Twitter feed and see what's going on, and sometimes Twitter is there first. You can't rely on everything, obviously, but I do tweet regularly, yes.
1: Okay, well, first up this week, and there was no shortage of stuff about this on Twitter – It was the BBC which published its long-anticipated report into bullying and sexual harassment. This was set up, you will remember, in the wake of the Jimmy Savile crisis, which prompted a vast amount of soul-searching at the BBC, entirely understandably, and analysis of the way it treats its staff. Nearly 1,000 people have worked at the BBC, past and present, felt moved to contribute. And it revealed that there have been 37 complaints of sexual harassment at the BBC in the last six years. It also uncovered widespread allegations of bullying and what it called an inadequate complaints procedure, which the BBC has promised to overhaul. Paul, you've uh, seen the report. Uh, Exactly how bad does it get for the BBC, do you think, Or, or could it have been worse?
3: Well I think first of all, I think probably many organisations probably have suffered similar things to the BBC, just as the BBC's in the spotlight and we're not talking about the BBC that doesn't excuse anything of course I think on the sexual harassment, although 37 is obviously far too many and is regrettable over six years, I think that doesn't say, doesn't sort of indicate there's a culture of sexual harassment in the BBC I think that's relatively small numbers for 20,000 staff, but the bullying numbers are much, much larger and it seems as though there are people in the BBC who are just untouchable. You know, people who are senior managers, uh, particularly talent, for whom it seems it's impossible for staff to whistleblow if there are any problems, and that, and that clearly is a big issue. The other issue, I think, is that the BBC HR department are not seen as being on the side of staff. They certainly uh, would claim they are, and of course I'm sure they probably are, but the perception is they are not uh, by the staff, and that is, that is a huge problem. And the other issue, I guess, is that there are people in the BBC BBC who've had complaints against them upheld, who apparently have been promoted, and the BBC at this moment uh, do not know who those people are, and they really do need to know because you cannot have someone who's been uh, complained about, been found guilty of a uh, an inappropriate behaviour, and then being promoted within the organisation. So a lot of um, cleansing to do in the BBC. They've got to obviously sharpen up their practices. Tony Hall's obviously, as you just said, claims zero tolerance. Um, historically, you know, a lot of lot of problems, and going forward. They've got to make sure that this does not happen in the future.
1: So, Stig, the BBC has promised to put all this right, uh, but it doesn't paint a, doesn't paint an encouraging picture of the way they've dealt with these um, staff problems in the past, going back ten, twenty, no, more years. it's
2: Terrible timing, really, for them, because obviously today Stuart Hall uh, pleads guilty to various offences, and, and of course, there's a huge difference in scale of, of what he did and what some of the things that have been talked about in this report are, but. One of the issues uh, is this notion of powerful people within organisations, and they, they refer to the talent as, as untouchable. And there's a sense, if you work at the BBC, uh, there's a group of people, some of whom will be senior management, but some of whom will be talent. If you are the talented, the person who goes out in front of the camera or behind the microphone, you're somehow beyond reproach. And you know, that is something that does unite Jimmy Savile and Stuart Hall and some of the other things that we've seen, the people who... They may well have been disquiet felt about their behaviour and, and their conduct, and they may be disquiet about various things, but you feel these guys, actually, even Russell Brand, one of the things that came out about, the, you know, the, the producer of the Russell Brand show, was never in a position where he could challenge Russell Brand about some of the things that he wanted to do, and there, the, I'm not in any way comparing the two, but there seems to be a suggestion uh, that these powerful people cannot be touched, and that might be uh, in, endemic in the BBC.
3: And I think it's interesting you mentioned the Stuart Hall situation, because obviously we found out uh, with Jimmy Savile that Jimmy Savile was apparently conducting uh, abuse practices on BBC premises at TV Centre. Uh, and we hear today that Stuart Hall apparently had a room at uh, the BBC building in Piccadilly in uh, Manchester, uh, where he regularly had people come and call on him before he went on air to do his TV show in the evening. Now, um, producers are saying they believe they were women you know, above age and therefore it was um, consensual activity, whatever that activity was. But now we hear indeed uh, that there, uh, there were children involved and the youngest victim was nine, so So, you know, big problem. Two big stars now um, who've been um, uh, conducting themselves inappropriately on BBC premises. That's clearly a big issue for the BBC.
2: When you look back at that, when the Savile problem first broke... There was a tremendous amount of inertia and hubris there when because it was a huge issue right from the beginning. You could tell this is about a powerful institution and very, very terrible practices going on within that institution and nobody challenging it. That's a huge difficulty. It happened in America with Penn State University. It nearly closed down that university. Uh, and if you remember the reactions of, of Chris Patton at the time, he was very, very relaxed for the first three or four or five days uh, and now when you look back, at it looks even more incredible than it did at the time. This was a scandal, the Jimmy Savile and now Stuart Hall, which has seriously tarnished uh, the BBC. And to their credit, they cover it. And they're, they're the people who criticise themselves the most. And that's where you see, I think, the strength of the, the BBC. But it, when you look back at that time, it makes you realise that
1: that inertia that also lingers within the institution uh, was, was really destructive. Um, and as far as the, the Stuart Hall offences go, I think the BBC is saying that it sort of remains to be seen whether those actually took place on the, on, the, on the premises or not. But, you know, they're sort of helping their police with their, with their inquiries, as it were. But, uh, Paul, I mean, you've worked at you had senior positions at the BBC, at BBC Radio and, and at Radio One. H- how much of this is, is familiar to you? I'm not talking about your management style, but, you know, uh, in the sense that, you know, talent had their own way and that they were bullying. And there was, a, a, I think uh, the report talks about a, a culture of sort of fear and a uh, climate of anxiety.
3: Yeah, I don't really recognise that, actually. I mean, I I worked at Radio 1 and then in network radio at a senior level. And I think behaviours were different 20 years ago. I mean, I think, um, you know, men being sort of um, familiar with women in a way maybe today that would not be acceptable was sort of acceptable, I think, amongst consenting adults then, if you understand, sort of more playful, you know, familiar, maybe even sort of touching on, you know, parts of the body might have been considered acceptable then. I didn't come across any actual bullying. I didn't come across any actual abuse. Um, But I think... I think times were different. But in terms of talent, I think we were aware that there was talent that was absolutely golden um, and talent that was very very difficult to challenge and indeed you know for a junior um, PA for example working at Radio 1 to challenge you know maybe a a top DJ on Radio 1 might be something they might think twice about because it could possibly risk their own career so I think that was the culture then I think things have moved on a great deal but certainly I do recognise some of the themes in the report. Although none of the actual practice was was actually anything I actually discovered or, or was part of or saw when I was at the BBC
1: and Stiggy you've talked about how this affects the BBC and its reputation and there there was criticism uh, quite apart from the bullying and, and harassment claims uh, also staff uh, talked about the, the, the perceived lack of leadership at the BBC uh, and they were sort of harking back to the golden age of Greg Dyke if you will and they talked about the, the relative invisibility of senior leaders and how they seem disconnected from the people they lead, That's not doesn't paint a very flattering picture of, well I mean I guess you've got to come back to Mark Thompson presumably, he was Director General for the last eight years.
2: It's rather ideal for, for Tony Hall though, I mean Tony Hall has been, is, is being given I think a, a very fair head of steam by most people as the person to, to put this right and it doesn't reflect well on Mark, Mark Thompson so I don't think George Ennis was there for long enough to really make any impact either way, but it certainly didn't look like he was the man to, to, to be the leader in, in that type of situation. I mean, Tony Hall has got a chance here, but you have to say that this is not just an issue for the BBC. Every major corporation has powerful people who are untouchable. Newspapers have powerful people who are untouchable. Banks. And- banks exactly yep. you, you pick virtually any uh, major institution you are never going to have the lowliest most junior person being able to, to take on uh, the most powerful so I think Tony Hall has a chance here to, to, to stamp his personality and he talks about zero tolerance of course he would say that but he's being given a fair wind he's had a couple of little minor skirmishes which will test him a little bit but nothing very serious and people want him to be that leader and I think that will make him more able to do it.
3: The other good thing is that this is all now coming out in public and I I think there's a big benefit there because just imagine what might have happened had the police uh, arrested Jimmy Savile you know, years ago when there were you know, suspected offences taking place and had that been publicised, uh, people might have come forward. People are clearly coming forward now uh, and reporting historical abuse cases because of the Jimmy Savile uh, affair. Tragic that these things happened, but at least these people now may get a chance to actually um, have their cases heard and to, to get justice.
2: And can I just say, what's well, a really interesting point here about... Um secret arrests, the idea about reporting arrests. What Stuart Hall's situation shows is that if you report the arrest of people, other victims can come forward. And it's very easy to, at a very personal level, to someone who's eventually proved to be innocent to say, what a terrible thing to have their lives turned over. And I absolutely get that. But it is an indisputable fact that if you report the existence of an arrest, particularly in sex abuse cases, that gives other people the chance and the courage to come forward and claim make claims about about a person and that's a really valuable part and, and we're in danger of uh, of losing that in this sort of post-levisum world and I think Stuart Hall becomes quite an interesting case study for why if you report the, the judicial process properly and if you report from arrest to to, to, to guilty plea you actually can benefit uh, society by other people coming there forward. Is a there is a
3: risk there of course and that is that if someone is arrested they're arrested for questioning people who are named in the media as being arrested may well. Suffer harm if it subsequently proved there's actually no no case to answer. So, I mean, when when they're charged, clearly people should be named. I think when people are arrested, you've got to be very very careful because mud can stick even if they're innocent.
1: As we've seen this week, of course, with uh, with Bill Roach. Yeah. Well, time to move on now. And next up this week, and with Stig here, it'd be rude not to. It's time to talk press regulation. In the unlikely event, dear listener, that you became fed up with hearing the word Leveson last year, then there are two words with which you may become over-familiar this year. Those two words, Royal Charter. Stig, give us a a one-minute idiots catch-up guide, if you will. An idiot's catch-up guide to royal charters is probably
2: a good way of summarising the situation that it is now. Effectively, I think most people a year ago would have thought it ludicrous that uh, the future of press regulation was based on what is effectively a medieval method of rule, which is uh, before you had any form of uh, civil service, you had the Privy Council and the royal charter uh, which set down certain rules for things being administrated. But that's now where we are. Everyone now has agreed that the way to regulate the press in the future will be at least based on royal charter Parliament agreed it. They put forward a version of a royal charter, which was the product in the end of negotiations with the newspaper industry, and then thereafter with Hacked Off sitting in a room with Ed Miliband late at night. And that produced a royal charter, which the newspaper industry said they didn't really like very much. Actually, about 80% of that charter is also reappearing in the second royal charter, which is a newspaper industry's royal charter, which they have now submitted to the Privy Council. So that's gone. Theoretically, before the Queen, there'll be a meeting on the 15th of May to debate which real charter we will now use as a way of setting up the successor body to the PCC. It's kind of farcical, it's kind of anachronistic, but that's where we are. And whichever version you like, you're still basically saying that this is going to be an establishment from the, cra- from the crown, from the queen, uh, dictating effectively the rules of the game for the new
1: regulator. So the politicians have come up with one charter, and most, well, not all, most of the newspaper industry have come up with a second charter, uh, 80% in common. But what's, what's the key? What are the, what's that 20%? Well, a
2: couple of the key things. Uh, One is, which I think is absolutely crucial, is this notion of an arbitral arm. And one of the the, sort of the hubristic aspects of Leveson was at the same time as trying to solve the insoluble problem of press regulation, he also wanted to have a crack at uh, libel laws and the access to justice. So one of the things he put in his proposals for a new regulator, which were not hugely well consulted and sort of came right from the beginning of something he really wanted to do, was to say that if you are a member of the new regulator, you will have to pay for swift libel and privacy legal arbitration. Now that, on one level, seems to be quite attractive for newspapers because you can get out of libel cases very quickly. But if you're a regional newspaper that doesn't get sued, or has almost never been sued, then the notion of being forced to pay money for a libel settlement that otherwise would never have happened is deeply unattractive. So what this Royal Charter for the newspaper industry says is, we might try looking at that Uh, arbitral process and we might even put a pilot together but we're not signing up to it whereas the government's version says this is absolutely part and parcel of the whole thing Uh, so that's one major thing the arbitral arm the notion of the appointments the absolutely vexed and laborious uh, side of the appointments process where you have to have a a panel that appoints another panel that appoints the actual panel i think there's a three panel process that is now being uh, essayed Uh, the newspaper industry wants involvement in that and their proposal actually gives more of a role to to newspaper proprietors and editors in having a say on who goes on the new body. It's worth pointing out that both the government's proposal and the newspaper's industry proposal is less independent than the current system. The current Press Complaints Commission appoints its members using three public members and an independence assessor. The newspaper industry is not involved really at any stage. It's actually more independent process than both of the new ones are being suggested. But, so these are, even as I explain this and people start plunging their heads into, into their tables <laughs> as they listen. Uh, you realize that these are very very small points that we're really debating and one of the deeply frustrating things i think for most people who aren't paid professionally to wrangle over this is that there's not an awful lot to disagree about the basic structure the notion of a pcc system that actually for the first time has a mandate to investigate standards uh, without complaint has the power to fine has a greater power to dictate apologies has a has a greater buy-in uh, for 5 years on a contractual system all of the things that that really that absolutely plagued the old PCC many of them are being put right in both versions and if we keep arguing about this we actually lose sight of uh, really the whole purpose of Leveson which we should never have been to try and pluck something out of the sky that was brand new but just to say what went wrong before and how can we make it better and if we had gone in with that type of attitude and the politicians had retained that attitude I suspect the new body would already be up and running.
1: Still gonna, I was going to ask you what happens next it's a, t- a, tough, a tough question to answer but uh, it feels like the, the newspapers are, are, and Cameron and the coalition all the politicians have to get the, have to get together and come up with a, a system on which they all agree otherwise it's hard to see the Privy Council sort of voting it through if it hasn't got unanimous well, well, agreement
2: and actually the, the Queen's officials will be saying because effectively the Privy Council act in the Queen's name she can't be given two different charters from two different constituencies and say pick one you I mean, choose it's, yeah. it's, it's absolutely uh, ludicrous so I think there will be a compromise from what I hear since the newspaper Industry published their proposal on Thursday. Certainly, the government did not react by calling them up, and I'm not aware of any channels of communication really being open. I think the government actually don't know what to do. Themselves. I think Cameron, who has never really had his heart in this, to be honest, would probably want a quiet settlement. The key figure in this is Harriet Harman. Harriet Harman is very close to hacked off. Her One of her officials comes from the Media Standards Trust. She is both a very tribal politician and a very loud uh, critic of certain aspects of, of, of the press and press regulations. She becomes actually a very key figure in this. I think the newspaper industry feel that they've slightly got their balls back. With the behaviour of hacked off. if you speak to editors, they feel that hacked off, sitting in Ed Miliband's office at two in the morning writing legislation was a, to quote Cameron Fraser, a Rubicon that's been crossed by them. And they feel that actually they've, they've become a slightly discredited body as a result of a very shrill uh, discredited body. Now, before that point, they're an almost perfect example of how to run a successful lobby. They achieved an awful lot. But in many ways, people start to think they've gone too far. Newspapers actually feel they can clamber back towards some of the moral high ground. They think the behaviour of the political establishment is actually to a certain extent, uh, so poor that the poor previous poor behaviour of newspapers starts to, to balance out. So I think newspapers are not in a mood just to roll over as they were two years ago when Leveson was announced, which on one hand doesn't suggest the compromise is likely, but at least it may mean that they stare Cameron in the eye and the two of them feel that it's actually best in both of their interests just to get going with it. So I think I'd be very surprised if before the 15th of May, we didn't get some
1: sort of compromise out of this. Well, stick that, that means you're a guaranteed booking for the first media talk after the 15th of May.
2: When there is no compromise, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that's enough press regulation for now. It's time to talk ITV. Why? Because John Whittingdale was entertaining journalists at a broadcasting press guild lunch this week. Uh, Mr Whittingdale, of course, Tory MP and chairman of the House of Commons Culture, Media and Sport Select Committee, held court for the best part of two hours on subjects almost too many to mention. In fact literally so. So we'll just pick up on a few of them. Uh, One area he talked about was ITV, and he thought it should be um, deregulated, stripped of its public service credentials, because he thought, well, it was doing quite a good job anyway. Well, media talk regular, media journalist Maggie Brown was at the lunch, and she's on the line now. Maggie, tell us his thoughts on that, and what you made of
0: it. Well, I was extremely vexed, because he opened up by uh, talking about things that had uh, struck him over the past few weeks, and he homed in on ITV's coverage for uh, Margaret Thatcher's funeral in St. Paul's uh, where they dispatched Holly Willoughby every now and then to talk about a few things and um, that they, they just didn't give it the kind of um, s- serious coverage that either BBC or Sky News did. And uh, he he thought that this was the signal that ITV no longer needed to be regulated as a public service broadcaster, a really dangerous thought from somebody in such a, a prominent uh, position and in such an influential position running a committee like that, just at the point when, as we know, um, the uh, licenses for ITV and Channel 5 are in the process of being uh, renewed for 10 years.
1: Let me ask Paul why he makes that. Paul, is, it, is a deregulated ITV a good idea?
3: Well, I think another point of view here might be, first of all, I mean, look, the fact that Holly Willoughby and, and the ITV coverage was terrible is not a reason for saying ITV should be made a private broadcaster. But think of it like this. The protection against um, a non-UK owner, a U.S. owner, really, for, for ITV is actually a share price. And the share price of ITV is very high right now. No one is going to buy ITV at the current price. If the share price drops, then there's nothing to stop um, a, uh, an American buyer buying ITV with or without the public service obligations. Um, what matters is
0: have not bought it, sorry, they could have bought it then uh, two years ago, when, when the share price was, or three years ago, when the share price... Well, had but people did look at it, I mean people did
3: and look a at half it, I mean, that, they, they the looked at it, place. yeah, you, you're right, I mean you're like, I mean, people did look at it, but I mean unless it makes commercial sense they're not going to, to buy it, and I don't think the public service obligation are a substantive part of a decision whether to buy or not. The other thing I'd say is that ITV is doing very well, now. ITV production is doing very well, because they've decided to focus on as you say, high-end dramas, uh, dramas that have got long number of episodes that can be sold overseas, and that is producing real revenue for ITV. So the protection, if you like, against high-quality drama and other long-running series, the HBO model, if you like, in the US, which I think is applauded and is seen as being you know, a producer of high-quality programming, is that they can sell it overseas. and So they'll continue to do that if it's commercially successful. Um, and the other point, of course, is that the, the reason for the public service obligation was spectrum scarcity. That has gone. Now that we're in digital world, the spectrum scarcity argument is completely gone, and that was a trade for the public service obligations. So I think there is an argument for saying what would an ITV without public service obligations look like? And I think the answer is not very different from now.
1: Well, that's enough ITV for now. We will find out more about the exact details of the terms of their licence renewal later this year, no doubt. And just time, Maggie, I know you're going to be excited. It's time for the Media Monkey Quiz.
0: Oh, no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Three questions and a bonus question, which is uh, sponsored by Paul Robinson, because I think he has an unfair advantage, but you'll find out why at the end. Um, where did the Olympics win double gold this week? No takers, it was the BAFTA TV Craft Awards you course, course, I was, John. Gonna, I, I I was, gonna was about jump to say in the BAFTA there. TV Craft Awards well, <laughs> I was going
3: to say the BAFTA TV, they got two And of well, course it must, also Channel 4 got one for the Paralympics
1: Yeah, right, well no bonus points
0: And Philippa Lowthorpe who directs uh, Call the Midwife She got one as well
1: Yeah, well that wasn't the question, but thanks all <laughs> We did all enjoy um, the BAFTA TV Craft Awards though. We did, we did I, I, They're the best Craft Awards that were on last
3: week I agree with that
1: this is Question number two, what was the most played jingle of 2012? Go uh, compare Go compare, yeah Stig Abel, one point. Okay, who wants to take Channel 5 off Richard Desmond's hands? Uh,
2: Chris Evans.
1: Chris Evans, yes. Uh, the Radio 2 breakfast DJ he's told joking, listeners... He's
2: joking though, isn't
1: he? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I think when uh, I think when he bought Virgin Radio, I think they announced that... Uh, I forget which breakfast show it would have been. Probably Virgin Radio. But I think he said that on... Uh,
2: he then said that he, he's got an idea for a TV programme where he'd get ten dogs. Well, he dog wanted owners.
3: TFI Friday reinvented with ten dogs who and, were going to be... There was a prize for the first dog that yawned, yeah. which doesn't sound like the most compelling... TV idea. I mean, look, if Richard Desmond was offered a huge wedge for his channel, five
1: hundred million, he, probably.
3: he would sell. I mean, of course. But, I mean, Chris hasn't got that sort of money. Exciting, I don't think Channel though,
0: 5 is going anywhere. That's the other problem. Mm. I mean, its, it's share of viewing is about 4%, and uh, it, it's getting more and more squeezed, isn't it? But,
1: but it's well, making makes money. money. We both said simultaneously it makes money. It makes unlike, money now. Unlike under RTL. Yeah. Paul Robinson, sponsor question. Bonus round. Uh, which radio station got the horn this week?
3: Oh, and that would be um, Team Rock. Uh, Team Rock, who've signed Nicky Horn, uh, the DJ who uh, started on Capital nearly 40 years ago with your mother wouldn't like it and has just left um, Bowers, Planet Rock to go to Team Rock. And are you involved in some shape or form with this? I am, I'm going involved. I actually, I actually look after Nicky Horn, yes.
1: Well, there you go. Well, yeah. do you get an extra 10% for that plug? I get I no. That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the, that one was. Very very unfair, that one. Thank you, Maggie. So I think it's ended up able to. Robinson 1 and, and Maggie, a yeah, good effort. And that's it for the first part of this week's show. My thanks to Paul Robinson, Stig Abel, and of course, all the way from Dulwich,
4: Maggie Brown. This week on The Guardian Audio Edition. Are Hollywood films too human? Reykjavik's radical mayor blazes a trail for the revolution in digital democracy. And we celebrate 100 years since the publication of Franz Kafka's The Judgment, and study provincial life with George Eliot's masterpiece, Middlemarch. To subscribe for free to The Guardian Audio Edition, go to audible.co.uk forward slash guardian or find us on SoundCloud, iTunes and Audioboo. The Guardian Audio Edition, a new way to get the whole picture.
1: Right, and I'm joined for the second part of this week's podcast by Emily Bell, all the way from New York. Emily, how are you?
5: Hello, John. I'm very well. I'm Uh, missing half a tooth, but let's not go into that. Oh, expensive, expensive US dentistry, yeah? Yes, and humiliating because an American dentist will look in my mouth and see some British teeth, which are not entirely there.
1: (laughs) Now, I mean this in the nicest possible way, but it sounds like you might have had a slightly late night last night.
5: It would, I was out celebrating um, the 125th anniversary of the Financial Times, which you may not think is such a big deal here in New York, but they, they lit up, they lit the uh, Empire State Building pink in its honour. Beautiful pink, of course. It was. It was a very, It was. A, if you can imagine this enormous pink column in the <laughs> middle of... Uh, Thank the, goodness
1: you didn't say pink erection.
5: No, it would be, I would never say anything like that, John. So we have, yes, big towering pink things in Midtown were the Empire State Building and, as you said, uh, probably the chief executive of the New York Times. Uh,
1: Yeah, lots of big cheeses there, I should ask. Yeah, Lionel Barber, Mark Thompson, who else?
5: John Fallon was there and John Ridding was there and Lionel Barber was there. And it was a very very civilised evening, marking, as I say, the almost entirely successful British takeover of New York.
1: And here's the big question. Was it a paywall bar? (laughs)
5: <laughs> no, oddly. I, I don't know. Maybe I didn't hit the meter, but I, I, I think maybe I did. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, let's let's move on. I, I feel
5: if I didn't hit the drink meter, they should probably set it a little bit more tightly.
1: <laughs> OK, well, we go from the FT. Let's take our first uh, stateside topic, Emily, which is the New York Times, uh, where the, uh, had its results last week. How were they?
5: Well, they weren't great uh, in that their actual uh, sort of profits, if you like, were down quarter on quarter compared to sort of, so uh, about half of what they were last year, uh, $3.1 million, compared to $8.7 million. But the really uh, tricky news, not just for the New York Times, but for the, the I guess, sort of the whole of the US uh, newspaper industry, is just how quickly advertising revenue is declining. Um, and the New York Times saw over an 11% decline in print advertising, but also a dip in digital advertising by 4%, which is, if you think about it, really extremely bad news because it's it's all very well to so say we have a paywall and look, our subscription um, levels are higher than our advertising levels. But if that's because advertising is falling at a precipitous rate, uh, that's not good news for anybody. So I think that they've got, you know, I mean, the New York Times, it has to be said, is still in profit. And, you know, it has a very large user base. And it is, I think it now has something like... Six hundred, nearly nearly 680,000 paid subscribers through its sort of digital and bundled newspaper products etc uh, but it's clearly going to be quite tough i think and mark thompson the new chief executive there formerly D- director general of the bbc has his work cut out
1: yeah if you okay. if he thought it was tough then it's uh, then it just got even tougher what, what what kind of paywall do they have on the year on the new york times then
5: um, well, they have a metered model, and it's been hailed over here as being uh, an extremely sort of successful implementation of a pay mechanism. And it is up to a point. Having nearly 700,000 subscribers in digital format is, uh, a, very, sort of, is a stabilizing element. But they were talking uh, last week at their results also about introducing a lower price package, to I guess kind of stimulate the number of subscribers because as we know all of those who all of those who spent those of us who spent decades covering um, sky television and you know how many subscribers have they added this month know that what well, you know you, you, you hit a kind of a plateau and then you have to keep either adding New products, or you know, doing something with a price to, to to keep your subscriber base up. And one of the things that uh, analysts were saying last week is that you know the actual sort of s- subscriber growth rate is uh, lowish at the moment, and so the metered wall has worked to a certain extent but they need more people really to sign up to it uh, and they will probably have to do that at a time when they're cutting costs and of course you know everybody knows that you know, that investment is one of the things that helps you actually kind of raise paid subscriptions so I don't want to paint a t- totally gloomy picture but I think a lot of people looked at those figures and thought you know this is not even in a recession over here you know we've had a a, a reasonable period of sustained growth in the economy even if it's a bit weak you know it has actually been growing um, and to see, you know, hard work in the subscription market, hard work in the ad market is not good news.
1: And uh, there's minor controversy about Mark Thompson's appointment, you know, about what he did or didn't know about Jimmy Savile's reputation and what have you. But And he's only been there a few months. But, uh, you know, has, is he making his mark? Has he left his uh, teeth marks?
5: Has teeth marks? There are no reports of anyone having been bitten. So um, I think it's going to Well, I mean, the two things that that, uh, people guessed in terms of, you know, what would Mark Thompson's strategy be were this international repositioning and probably a greater emphasis on video. Certainly, I think the greater emphasis on video is is a non sequitur. That would be in the hands of Jill Abramson as the editor. But definitely, there's a major uh, push to reposition or just to accelerate the idea of The New York Times as an international news player. So... We've seen them rebrand things like the, the, the International Herald Tribune um, has come under a sort of New York, New York Times brand. They're getting, getting rid of um, the Boston Globe, which was a, uh, you know, a, a quite symbolic move because it's a bit like saying, you know, we can't really be doing with the, the sort of the concentration on local and national news. We have to focus just on the New York Times brand and we have to make it international. And So Thompson has been talking about that quite a bit. But, you know, it is, as they say, too early to tell. But the, the, the American market is fairly unforgiving, so he will have to focus quite hard on getting those numbers up.
1: Uh, that's what all sensible newspapers do, is go global. Take the brand global.
5: Yes, I think it's a brilliant strategy. I can't think who first thought of it, but um, everyone should do it, clearly. that um, I'm not being entirely satirical about that either. I mean, I think, you know, there is only one way to grow often in these markets, and that's to, that's to, that's to expand outwards. You have BuzzFeed over there now, don't you?
1: And we do indeed, yeah. Disappointed
5: yeah. cats that look like members of the Cabinet as opposed to members of Congress, probably.
1: He, he, he can't get enough of that. And finally, uh, <laughs> from perfect. across the pond, Reed Hastings has been doing something entirely predictable.
5: Yes, I, I'm I'm very pleased. Uh, myself and my former colleague, uh, Matt Wells, I'm sure, is also very pleased about the fact that Reed Hastings, who is the hottest executive at the moment in um, To America, look at or... Uh, it, no, follow on Twitter no, or I, hot, so I shouldn't say that because there are all those lists of you know the, the hot chief executives and things like that. And I mean, no, in terms of talked about and uh, the buzz around, so
1: and he's he, the head of Netflix, of course. Yeah, he
5: is the head of Netflix, and this is the company that everybody's looking to and talking about. Um, in terms of if you like, sort of that they're, they're kind of poking the soft underbelly of cable TV, uh, in quite a disruptive manner. And he uh, issued a, an eleven-page strategy document last week, in which he declared the end of linear television. And he's clearly been listening to old uh, versions of media talk from about seven years ago, where, where this was a, <laughs> an abiding Hot topic. theme. Hot topic. Still hasn't. Several people pointed out still hasn't, hasn't actually happened yet. But it's kind of quite interesting. So you have Netflix, who are now making. Um, actually almost as much profit as the New York Times um, and instead of you know that they've gone to make some sort of into making kind of three million dollars a quarter profit which doesn't sound very high but they were in loss this time last year and the fact is that they're actually kind of now pulling in a billion dollars a quarter so you know that's a hell of a lot of growth is and- there any
1: any sense how, how well they're doing in the UK or are they not so keen on being hugely transparent about that
5: well, they did talk a little bit actually about the UK market as well. Um, and they haven't, I mean, I can't. I think there's
1: a million subscribers, isn't there? But I, don't, I guess there are huge yeah, big startup
5: I, costs. I was going to say, whether, that, that there will be quite a lot of investment in the UK market at the moment. And obviously, there is quite a lot of competition there as well. You know, you have um, Love Film and other services. But over here, they really have sort of torn up the rule book. And, you know, they're talking about really big investments in film rights and tv rights and content and they are also investing in their own productions so you know house of cards obviously sort of famous one and they they're saying there'll be more of that but actually they're spending a sort of a tiny fraction of of their overall content budget on that something like 10 percent about 200 million dollars or whatever which is it's more like sort of pr i think rather than actually a a way to make money in the future he is much listened to at the moment because people very much feel that television here is where the press were about a decade ago. In other words, strong profits all investing in, you know, sort of shiny new infrastructure. Uh, and yet sort of this this lurking threat of disruption is, is real and it's not going away. And a lot of people look at Netflix and say, well, that's that's essentially what's going to happen is that y- you will have big live events uh, left on um main network television, and then you will have Netflix or some form of that, and then everything else in cable will, will really struggle.
1: And none other than John Whittingdale, this uh, media select committee chairman, was talking about. Yeah, there's a new series on Netflix called Hemlock Grove, which I think uh, the horror director, Eli Roth, is responsible for, and he said it was absolutely hideous, but uh, he's, he's a big horror fan, Whittingdale. He loved it.
5: Is he? Yeah. John, I can see John Whittingdale, actually, with a bag of popcorn, watching... Um, Hostel.
1: He's a big fan of Hostel, parts one yes, and two, he said.
5: Yes, Rosemary's Baby and and The Shining, sort of, uh, over and over again at night. It's like, How interesting. <laughs> it's
1: probably too mild for him. Yeah.
5: <laughs> he's a man, yes, he's a man of hidden depths, clearly. He is,
1: he is indeed. All right, uh, Emily, well, thank you for that, and we will hopefully thank catch you. up soon.
5: I, I hope so, when I've had my teeth fixed. Yeah,
1: good luck at the dentist.
5: Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Are you an aspiring journalist or writer? The Guardian International Development Journalism Competition is your chance to win an assignment to Africa, Asia or South America. You'll write for The Guardian about the global development issues that face the area you visit. All you need to do is submit a short essay on one of the 12 diverse themes. You can find all the information you need at guardian.co.uk forward slash journalism competition. Enter now to win the work experience of a lifetime. Visit guardian.co.uk forward slash journalism competition. The deadline is midnight on Sunday the 12th of May. Terms and conditions apply.
1: And I'm joined for the last part of the show by The Guardian's new TV and radio editor, Rebecca Nicholson. You sounded so excited. I am very excited. Congratulations.
4: Thank you very much. I can't wait.
1: No stranger to the pod? No. Even better.
4: And now you will have me often.
1: Fantastic. You might not
4: even be able to get away. I'm just going to turn up when you're talking about something else. You're on
1: series link. (laughs) Uh, I pressed my green button. And the first show we're going to watch, and it's a show I've seen as well, heaven forbid, and it's not uh, Seinfeld or ER. It's uh, Politician's Husband.
4: Yes. Thursday night's episode of The Politician's Husband. It's the second episode. um, I think there are three in total. Now, how do you feel about this show, John? You said that you've seen it...
1: I rather enjoyed the first episode. Yeah, I'm still waiting to see the second. But uh, yeah, I thought David Tennant was brilliant once I got over his hair. That took about 10 minutes.
4: How about his accent? Uh, I
1: thought it was good. I always like it. Um, So in this case, I don't like it when he has his genuine Scottish accent. And even though the the programme made a big impact on me, can't quite work out. I think he was English, wasn't he?
4: He was. Right, he that's w- good. He was from. It sounded like he was from various regions of the UK at different points.
1: Did it change? I didn't catch it, that. It
4: did change a bit. But his I, hair was rock solid. His hair was rock solid. I enjoyed it last week, uh, the first week. I thought it was great fun, if a little bit overblown. You know, it's very melodramatic. But this week, there's an extraordinary rape scene very early on in the show. And it's just... It's just not only is it horrible and unnecessarily graphic, but I think that it really acts as a kind of clunky metaphor for gender politics. And I think it's really unnecessary. So that's left a sour taste. And I'm not even sure I'm going to watch the third episode as a result. I really didn't enjoy it at all. took a very nasty turn.
1: Sort of destabilises the whole show. It just kind of knocks it off.
4: It just knocked it. Yeah, I just thought it was unnecessary. And and also very laboured and kind of an obvious, in a way, an obvious thing to do. And the lines this week were, I'm going to read you a line that I wrote down. Go on then. If you can't stand the tweet, get out of my kitchen. <laughs>
1: <Ooh>. <laughs> uh, Dreadful. Yes. Yeah. So
4: I think it's taken a, a wrong turn for me anyway.
1: And the first episode had, uh, you know, it's better to have and so in the tent pissing out than outside the <laughs> tent pissing in, which is, you know. Which is again one of the great sort of political political drama cliches of all time. As yes. I think Andrew Collins pointed out on yes, a, he did. a certain uh, Guardian uh, TV review show, he did. And it's a long time since the first one, which is Politician's um, Wife, wasn't it? Yes. So a sequel, long time coming.
4: I have never seen the Politician's Wife. When when was that on?
1: I think it was about uh, circa 1996, yeah. uh, around that time.
4: I don't think I would have. I don't think it would have been my kind of thing then. My so-called life. That's what I was into around that era. Oh really? Yep. Yeah.
1: I think I was watching, oh, no one cares what I was watching. But if the BBC are smart and they can sort the rights out, what you need is to have the old, uh, you know, first one on the iPlayer. Maybe it is. Or BBC
4: Four or something like that, I'm sure that that will... It should happen.
1: BBC Four. The BBC's newfound fondness repeats. Yep. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's another chance to see.
4: Let's move on. Show
1: number two this week is something called Community, which I'm afraid I have no idea what it is but because I'm uncool and out of touch.
4: Well, not really. It's also on the Sony Entertainment Channel. So, Oh, right. It's well, not, I, feel, I feel much better <laughs> We're now. not talking about Primetime BBC Two here. I
1: don't know about it because I'm not a nerd. I don't
4: know. No, um, big it's fan, on Sony. Friday nights, 11pm, Sony Entertainment Channel. This is the third season And it's actually one of the best sitcoms around, I think. I'm a huge, huge fan. If you're in any way a pop culture nerd, then it's great for you. They do spoofs of various pop culture things, but they're so well done and it's so clever. And it's one of those shows, like Modern Family, the plotting is so tight and it's witty. The script is great. The ensemble cast is great. Chevy Chase. This is season three. Chevy Chase is still in it at this point. Chevy Chase? Yes, he is a a great cantankerous old man. Caddyshack? Yep. Spies
1: Like Us? (laughs)
4: Other films? He is no longer in it. They're in season four in the States, and there's been some big changes. The showrunner, Dan Harmon, left. It sounds like acrimoniously. Chevy Chase left acrimoniously. um, And the reviews haven't been great. But season three is the last great season of it, and you can catch it on UK TV, so I would heartily recommend it. So is it a
1: sketch show or a sitcom or a bit it's of a both? A sitcom, right? Okay.
4: Six of them. They play. Stu- Sorry, I should explain what it's about. I'm just assuming that everyone has seen it and give me the elevator pitch. Six friends at an adult community college, and they're all very different. And that's it.
1: I live near a community centre, and I realised recently that I'm closer to the over 60s pop-in lunch
4: than, <laughs> than I am
1: when I was at university.
4: Are you tempted?
1: Uh, It's just, it feels like I've I've crossed a Rubicon. I've kind of gone over the top of the hill and I'm coming down the other side, gaining speed.
4: Is this like that statistic that Nirvana's Nevermind is now, um, it's now longer since Nirvana's Nevermind than Nirvana's Nevermind was since the moon landings? Is that right? Something like that.
1: Yeah, that makes me feel confused.
4: Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) me too. I don't think I've explained it very well
1: and it's uh, certainly longer since uh, Genesis is Invisible Touch than it has been since Nirvana's <laughs> Nevermind but uh, that's just a linear thing uh, but anyway community i'm going to look that up
4: and omar from the wire is in the first episode of what? season 3
1: right okay definitely 11pm uh, on John some And John Goodman kind of- sorry John Goodman John Goodman as well guess this is like a guest list for my wedding <laughs> uh, okay and third up
4: third up Hannibal
1: Hannibal sky, sky living, living.
4: 10 p.m. Tuesday. If ever
1: there was a less appropriate for a program called Hannibal about a serial killer,
4: sure. <laughs> Sky Living. I spoke to Sky Living about this, and apparently crime is very big for them, because their audience is primarily female. Ladies love crime, so hence the reason that this big American drama, which I would have thought might be more suited to Sky Atlantic, is actually going to be on Sky Living. Hannibal. It's a prequel to the Hannibal Lecter stories, starring Mads Mickelson as Dr. Lecter. And, Who, um listeners may know,
1: from he, Casino Royale.
4: He is wonderful in this. He's absolutely brilliant. He's magnetic and mesmerising and charming and kind of everything you want. A, a Dr. Lecter.
1: <laughs> from a serial killer.
4: But, but this is the, the oh, Hannibal oh. Lecter thing, isn't it? That he's not your regular, average, everyday psychopath. He likes nice wine and to eat his victims. But he's actually helping out the FBI at this stage. They don't know that he's a serial killer. Hugh Dancy is playing a kind of FBI profiler who has the ability to empathise with serial killers and so is taken to crime scenes, has these flashbacks and then says it was this person who did this and this is why. And Dr Lecter decides to be his best mate and there's some crossover. It's just, it's a great drama. It's hugely entertaining. It looks beautiful. It's made by Brian Fuller who did... Pushing Up Daisies.
1: Yep, with the Frail. Yep. Yep, a while back.
4: And before that, Dead Like Me, which was a very good show that nobody saw, but was great. And they're, they've all, they're all aesthetically quite similar. It's kind of, not day glow in this instance, but hyper real and very beautiful looking. And it's fantastic. I've seen the first four episodes. I watched them very quickly. It's great.
1: Okay, well, I think that's uh, two thumbs up, I think.
4: Double thumbs up. Double Four thumb- if I had them. Four.
1: Well, I'll put mine up. Uh, oh, no. Okay. And uh, also next week, there's uh, another t- uh, terrifying figure who uh, keeps you awake at night. And uh, frankly, you wouldn't want to meet in the lift. Uh, that's Lord Sugar. But we're going to talk about The Apprentice, I think, next week. Yes. Jolly good. Well, more of that then. But for now, Rebecca Nicholson, thank you very
4: much. Thank you. Thank
1: <laughs> you. And that's it for this week's show. My thanks to all our guests who were, in no particular order, Emily Bell, Maggie Brown, Stig Abel, Paul Robinson, and Rebecca Nicholson. My name's John Plunkett, and Media Talk is produced by Mr Matt Hill. You can leave your comments on this week's show on our Facebook wall or our blog, or you can tweet me at the ever-popular John Plunkett 149 Thanks for listening.
4: For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.